every generation had their own wonderful storytellers. Every generation. We don't have the time this morning to go back through all of history and see that. So let's just go back to our most recent generation. Here are some of the great storytellers. And I understand that this could be debated. In fact, this first one is debated even in my own home. I would say in the realm of fiction, the greatest storyteller of our time is a man named John Grisham. My wife would say the greatest storyteller of our time in the realm of fiction is a lady named Karen Kingsbury. So we can bat that back and forth with one another on a regular basis. In nonfiction works, one of the greatest storytellers of our time, my opinion, would be a fellow named Stephen Ambrose. He died just a few years ago, but he wrote about the history of our nation in ways that I have never seen before. I love reading his works. They're inspiring. They are insightful. They are encouraging. They're all kinds of different things, and at times, even convicting. And then, of course, there is the greatest storyteller of our time. And I don't even know that this is up for debate. He should be venerated. He really should. This man passed away a few years ago, and when he did, he left a hole in our world and in our society. Because when he told stories, he did it from the curious and the insightful, and he could capture your attention like nobody else. Of course, I'm talking about a fellow named Paul Harvey. A lot of times when he would tell stories, he would build towards the great reveal at the end. That was referred to as, say it with me, the rest of the story. But not all of his great storytelling was done as part of the rest of the story. Sometimes the stories that he shared were tucked away in the middle of his newscast. And when you would hear him, you would just find yourself saying, is that true? Where did that come from? How did he find that? Or at least I did. If you grew up with Paul Harvey, you know what I'm talking about. If you didn't, well, let me help. Listen to this. As far as I know, what I'm about to relate is not fact. Maybe the oldest legend of the Christian era. I've sought to backtrack the story of its source. No use. Don't look for it in the Bible. You'll not find it there. Of all those who have retold it, none ever signed his name to it. And when you retell it, please do not credit me. Generations have kept this story alive only because it seemed deserving of living. That does not make it immortal, but it makes it interesting. It's the legend of the dogwood tree. Visiting the Holy Land, I discovered the legend is told there quite the same as I heard it half a world away. And that is strange. There are so many possibilities for expanding and elaborating on, for exaggerating this yarn. I was quite surprised to hear it repeated simply and unadorned. By some, it is repeated as fact. By others, it is told to babies at bedtime, more as American mothers tell fairy tales. And yet Disney gave dignity to those, even credulity. And so, generations of repetition have lent credibility to the legend of the dogwood tree. It is said, at the time of the crucifixion of Christ, the dogwood was a very large tree, big as an oak. The dogwood was so even textured and firm and strong that it was chosen as the timber for the cross. Thus to be used for such a cruel purpose greatly distressed the tree, and Jesus sensed this. He, who noted even the sparrow's fall, whose last compassion was for a repentant thief, 
He similarly forgave the repentant dogwood tree for its unfortunate fate. And as he was nailed upon it, he sensed the painful remorse of the tree. In gentle pity for all sorrow and suffering of every living thing, he said to the tree, Because of your share of my suffering, never again shall the dogwood tree grow large enough and strong enough to be put to such a cruel purpose as this. He said, Henceforth, the dogwood shall be slender and bent and twisted, that it might forever remain unmolested by the tools of cruel men. And the blossoms, listen to this, and the blossoms shall be in the form of a cross, two long petals and two short. And in the center of each petal, there will be nail prints, brown with rust and stained with red. And in the center of the flower will be a crown of thorns. And all who pass and see the dogwood tree will remember me. And so it came to pass. Page four. Oh, I miss listening to him at noon every day, scanning through the stations on the radio just to see if you could dial in to Paul Harvey. Great storyteller. But if we were to roll back the hands of time nearly 2,000 years to the first century, we would find that the greatest storytellers of that generation were the ones who wrote the Bible, the ones who lived with Jesus. There were some others that surrounded them, men like Josephus, that would write like Stephen Ambrose did, historical accounts of what was happening during those days, but for the real accounts, the eyewitness accounts of everything that was happening in the center of all civilization, if you will, from that point forward, it was the biblical writers. And one of my favorite was an apostle named John. John had a way of capturing people's attention, including ours, different than the other biblical authors. And there isn't necessarily a common theme that makes its way through his works. He's random in a lot of different ways. Let me just show you what I'm talking about. He wrote five books of the New Testament. If you have your Bibles with you, we're going to jump to each one of those this morning, but we're going to do it really fast. So grab hold of the saddle horn as we do this. Let's go first to the book of 1 John. Not the Gospel of John, Matthew, Mark, Luke, John, but 1 John. Easiest way to find it is go to the book of Revelation and turn left a few books. You'll run into 1st, 2nd, and 3rd John. He starts this book from the realm of the emotional. Listen to what he says. 1 John chapter 1, verse 1. That which was from the beginning, which we have heard, which we have seen with our eyes, which we looked upon and have touched with our hands, concerning the word of life. The life was made manifest, and we have seen it, and testified to it, and proclaimed to you the eternal life, which was with the Father, and was made manifest to us. That which we have seen and heard, we, will, we proclaim also to you, so that you too may have fellowship with us. And indeed, our fellowship is with the Father, and with His Son, Jesus Christ. And we are writing these things so that our joy may be complete. He starts with the emotional. And the rest of this book is written in a very emotional way, pulling at our heartstrings as John would reveal his heartstrings to us. By the time we get to the next letter, the letter of Second John, he doesn't start from the emotional, but rather from the curious. Chapter 1, verse 1. The elder to the elect lady and her children whom I love in truth, and not only I, but also all who know the truth, 
because of the truth that abides in us and will be with us forever. Grace, mercy, and peace will be with us from God the Father and from Jesus Christ the Father's Son in truth and love. The curious is right there from the beginning. The elder, who in the world is that? To the elect lady and her children, who are they? It's enough to make you scratch your head and and wonder out loud, who is John writing to? And of course, there's only one chapter in that book. So it's difficult to find the big reveal, the rest of the story, unless you dig deeply into it. By the time we get to the third letter, we find him writing from the personal. Listen to this, verse 1. The elder, here he is again, somewhat curious, to the beloved Gaius, whom I love in truth. Beloved, I pray that all may go well with you and that you may be in good health as it goes well with your soul. For I rejoice greatly with the brothers, came and testified to your truth, as indeed you are walking in the truth. I have no greater joy than to hear that my children are walking in the truth. It's very personal. You know from the start that that entire book, again, just one chapter, is going to be very personal. Then John is also the author of one of the most curious books of the Bible, one that has sparked a lot of people's imagination and a lot of controversy through the years, the book of Revelation. He starts this one out from the supernatural. Listen to it. Chapter 1, verse 1. The revelation of Jesus Christ, which God gave him to show to his servants the things that must soon take place. He made it known by sending his angel to his servant, John, who bore witness to the word of God and to the testimony of Jesus Christ, even to all that he saw. Blessed is the one who reads aloud the words of this prophecy, and blessed are those who hear and who keep what is written in it, for the time is near. He starts out simply by telling us that an angel delivered the vision that he was about to write. It is supernatural in nature. It is supernatural in character. That's part of the reason that it has spurned so much curiosity. That's part of the reason that controversy has risen out of it. It's supernatural. Then, of course, there's the first book that he wrote, the Gospel of John. Why don't you turn back there with me? This one, he does not start from the curious. He doesn't start it from the emotional. He doesn't start it from the personal. He doesn't even go into the supernatural realm. In the Gospel of John, John starts in the doctrinal. He wants to make sure that he lays a foundation on which everything else is built. And that's the way the Gospel of John starts. See how there isn't a common theme or a common thread running through every one of his books? They're random. They're different. That's why John is such a great storyteller. The Gospel begins this way. Chapter 1, verse 1. In the beginning was the Word, and the Word was with God, and the Word was God. He was in the beginning with God. All things were made through Him, and without Him was not anything made that was made. In Him was life, and the life was the light of men. The light shines in the darkness, and the darkness has not overcome it. That's foundational. That's doctrinal. If we are going to understand who Jesus is, we have to begin right there. It's incredibly intriguing to me that in the Gospel of John, John starts with statements like this, and we're going to pick those apart in just a few minutes. But at the end of his book, he ends simply with Jesus. Keep your finger there in chapter 1, but turn with me to chapter 21. 
The very last verse of this book reads like this. Now, there are also many other things that Jesus did. Were every one of them to be written, I suppose that the world itself could not contain the books that would be written. That's how much Jesus did. John starts with the doctrinal, the foundational, and he ends with the practical. Jesus did all kinds of things. And if every one of his acts were recorded, libraries could not contain it. Skipping back just one chapter, John would say this. Chapter 20, verse 30. Now Jesus did many other signs in the presence of the disciples, which are not written in this book. But these are written, so that you may believe that Jesus is the Christ, the Son of God, and that by believing, you may have life in his name. Don't you just love the fact that John would say, I wrote all of this down so that you would believe? In everything that Jesus has done, in everything that was accomplished in his 33 years here, and John's gospel really focuses on just the last three years of Jesus' life. He doesn't spend time talking about how he was born, where he was born, all of the early days of Jesus' life like Matthew, Mark, and Luke do. John just jumps right into the three years of his ministry, seemingly skipping over all of those other details. But he says right here in chapter 20, the reason I did that was that you might believe. That everybody that would ever pick up this book would find stories that would inspire them to believe in the God who saved them. That's what the Gospel of John is all about. And over the next few weeks, we are going to lift the stories of transformed lives out of this gospel, and we're going to look closely at them so that you can see how Jesus met people and how Jesus changed people. But we're going to do all of that that you might believe, that you might find yourself in the midst of those stories. But before we can do that, we have to address the doctrinal, the foundational things that John starts with. Otherwise, we're going to miss the point. We need to really understand who Jesus is. Before we can see Him changing us, before we can see how He changes us, before we can even explore why He changes us, we have to understand who Jesus is. And that means we have to get into the first verse of John's gospel. I want you to keep your Bibles open to that verse this morning. I understand that it is the deep water of Scripture. It is hard to wrap your mind around when John starts with statements like this, in the beginning was the Word, and the Word was with God, and the Word was God. You could find yourself saying, what is he talking about if you're not careful? But if you are careful, if you take the time to unpack that verse, you're going to discover some wonderful things about Jesus. Don Sanders is here to teach our New Testament class starting tonight. Don and I have a 20-year friendship. We celebrate 20 years of friendship this year. He is, well, I don't want to say this, but I will, the most intelligent man I know. And so I just threw up in my mouth a little bit just saying that. But, but he is. Don is the smartest man I know. So I was excited to start this series with him with us so that he could help me unpack this verse. So I'm going to invite Don to come up and join me this morning, and we're going to talk our way through just one verse of the Bible. One of the things that has defined our 20-year friendship 
is conversations just like this. We have enjoyed through the years just debating and talking about the things of God. And over the course of this week, we've been doing that very thing. This is our invitation for you to join us in a conversation just like that. Would you welcome Don? So, Don, is there anything you'd like to say about me? I just, I'll get, no, I'm just kidding. Just kidding. You could start with... I could. Well, no, Phil's the most intelligent person I know. Absolutely. I was going to say handsome. I'll take that. Practical. I'll, oh, there you uh, go. There you go. Not exactly sure what to do with that. So... John chapter 1. Don, it starts out in a really interesting way. John uses these words, in the beginning. Those are familiar words. Why are Mm -hmm. they so significant in our understanding of Jesus? Well, so when you look at John, obviously, when he says, in the beginning, for anyone who's read the Old Testament, that sounds familiar to us. He's intentionally going all the way back to Genesis. Now, the, the New Testament was written in Greek. The Old Testament was written in Hebrew. And so he's, he's using a different language, but when you read the, the Greek translation of the Old Testament, the Septuagint, he quotes exactly what that is. And so when John says, in the beginning was the word, he, he's really saying, look, the story of Jesus, and, and John is writing probably to people that know about Jesus. So he's, he's not introducing Jesus to the first time to most people, but he's saying, look, Jesus didn't start in Nazareth in whatever year that was. He's saying Jesus goes all the way back to the very beginning. He is saying we have, we have to go back to the very beginning of what he talks about. And that the story of Jesus does go that far back to us. And that Jesus was not something that was created. He was not a person that just showed up on the scene. But that he was involved intimately in creation. And he says that just a couple of verses down there. Nothing was created without him. And so John is really saying that Jesus is, is the agency through which creation happens. And so for John, he's like, to understand Jesus, realize that Jesus' beginning was the beginning of everything, and really, which was no beginning. The beginning for us, but not the beginning for him. Mm-hmm. It's interesting to me that you use the word intimate in that whole discussion. Mm-hmm. That has such a, a personal application for us. And if we understand that Jesus was there from the very beginning of creation, we can also apply it to the thought that he was there at the beginning of our creation. Absolutely. Not just the creation of the universe, but the creation of us. Mm-hmm. The psalmist actually writes about that in the 139th Psalm. I like the way he says this. For you formed my inward parts. You knitted me together in my mother's womb. There is absolutely nothing hidden in our life from Jesus because he was there from the very beginning. That's why that's such a foundational idea. There is nothing that we have, nothing that we have said, nothing that we have done, nothing that we have experienced that he isn't fully aware of. And if we're willing to accept that, that is part of the transformation that can come through an intimate relationship with him. It's such a cool thing that John starts with those words in the beginning. They're familiar, and if we will chase them all the way back, then we can understand things about how God loved us before we were ever made so that he mm-hmm. could love us in our life that he might love us forever. Yeah. So it also, it's interesting that it's what separates John's gospel from the other three in that he says the story of Jesus doesn't start with his birth. The story of Jesus goes just so much further, further mm-hmm. back than that. Mm-hmm. 
But it takes an interesting turn, John does, because he doesn't say, in the beginning, Jesus. He chooses a different way of describing him. He chooses a different word. Maybe that jumped off the page to you as we were reading John 1.1. 1, 1. He says, in the beginning, the word. Why? Yeah. Why? So this is one of those concepts that, that really kind of throws people because as we read it in, in, in Greek, in English, we look and go, that's kind of an odd word to use. Word, in the beginning was the word. And so when we go back and look at the original language, as we said, the New Testament was written in Greek, that the word, the Greek word for word is the word logos. If we were to transliterate it into English, it would be L-O-G-O-S. Now that, so when we see that, hear that word logos, that was not just a, 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 a meaningless word that he uses. That, that word actually had a tremendous meaning in the Greek philosophical culture. The, the Greek philosophers you've heard of, Socrates and Aristotle and Plato and, and all of those, they talked about the concept of the logos in their writings. And the idea that they had was that the logos was the, uh, I'm going to make sure I say the right word, that it, the meaning or the schematic of the universe. It was what brought structure, it was what brought meaning and, and as we said, structure to all the universe. And so for them, the word was this very nebulous sort of interweaving that held everything together. They couldn't really define it very well, but they knew it was there. And so when John says, in the beginning was the word, logos there, what he is saying is that he's making a connection between Jesus and the meaning of the universe. He's saying Jesus is the schematic. Jesus is the way that we interpret. It is the way that we understand through this. And one of the other ways that you can really understand that word logos is the word revelation. So it, it comes from, when we think of a word, it's something that we speak. And when we speak, we reveal what's in our hearts, what's in our minds. And so for him to say that Jesus was the word, the logos of God, that Jesus is the perfect revelation, revealing of God to him. It, it's far deeper than that, but at, at the most basic level, it's that Jesus is the revelation of God. Don't you just find yourself loving the fact that John didn't start out by saying, in the beginning, Jesus. He chose something that would cause us to dig deeper into it, mm -hmm. where we might find things like what you just described as structure and revelation. Mm -hmm. When we start to apply that in our own individual lives, we can take the idea of the logos, the word, off of the page and apply it very personally and individually so that we can see Jesus as the structure and the revelation of our lives. Yep. Absolutely. Jesus himself actually describes himself that way with cool, curious terminology. Keep your finger there in John chapter 1, but turn with me to Revelation chapter 22. Revelation chapter 22. Now John is still writing these words down as the angel gives them to him, but in this particular case, these are Jesus' words. If you have a red letter edition of the Bible, these are in red. Verse 13. Jesus says, I am the Alpha and the Omega, the first and the last, the beginning and the end. Now there's the structure. Jesus is the Alpha and the Omega, the first and the last, the beginning and the end. If that is carried out of the idea of creation and into our individual lives, it's fair to say that he is the structure of our lives, mm -hmm. the beginning and all the way through to the end. True? Yeah, absolutely. It's amazing how many people have him as the beginning, but not the end. 
Yeah, isn't that a unique thing that, that there's a lot of folks who will see Jesus as their alpha, but then they bail out and they don't allow him to become the omega, the end. That's a sad reality. But for people that have spent some time on the trail with him, you know what it's like to start the journey and look forward to the end of the journey. Mm-hmm. Like we were talking about this last week, the real application of that is this. Whether you finish with Jesus or not, he is still the end. Right. We don't get to determine who he is at the end. He is the Alpha and the Omega. So if you don't allow him to remain the Omega in your life, the structure in its entirety, not only are you missing out on what he has for us, you're positioning yourself in structure for judgment. Yeah, absolutely. It, it, it's really crazy to think about that. That when we, when we see it, that we look at the world that he's the lens that we should view it through. And not only the world, but also through our lens. It's how we interpret ourselves. Mm-hmm. Part of the reason that John would start the way he did. Because not only do we interpret Jesus as we get into the Gospel of John, we have to interpret ourselves. Yeah. And, and let the Word interpret us as yes. well, too. That's a unique facet of the <laughs> book that if we don't look closely, we will miss it. So those are the, the easy parts of John's discussion in that first verse. It's about to get a lot more difficult because he says, In the beginning, all the way back before time was, was the Word, was Jesus. But then he, he makes this statement, and this is where it is so doctrinal and so confusing for people because he says the Word, Jesus, was with God. What in the world? Yeah, so... He's already laid this, this big theology bomb on them. Uh, you know, he's the logos. He's the view. He's the, the schematic of the universe. But uh, then he says, but he's not just that. He's not this impersonal force. He's not this impersonal being. He uses a, a very specific word. And, and in English, we even understand this, this word with. That he says he was the, the word, but that the word was with God. Now, that implies something that throws a lot of people for a loop there. But when he says that the Word was with God, what he is saying is that there was relational, that God at his core, at his essence, is a relational God. He wasn't just there at the same time, but he was with. And so, you know, it's dangerous to build a whole doctrine out of one preposition. But in this case, that is very significant, that Jesus was with God. God is relational at its core. You read these verses from 1 John uh, earlier, but I, w- I want to read this verse just real quick again. 1 John in chapter 1, where he says in verse 3, so that we have seen, we have proclaimed to you, so that you too may have fellowship with us. Fellowship is the idea that implies being with someone, relational. And indeed, our fellowship is with the Father and with his Son, Christ Jesus. So the way that we have a relational, as we were joking last night, a relational relationship I suppose you can have a non-relational relationship. Maybe not. But anyway, um, but the reason that we can have a relationship with God is because he is, that Jesus is in fellowship with God in relationship. And when we have relationship with Jesus, we then have it with God. Mm -hmm. Isn't it cool then that John would utilize that whole idea in the realm of the emotional in the book of 1 John? And he would say, what we have seen, what we have touched, what we have tasted... That's what we're sharing with you. We want you to have the type of relationship that we have. We want you Mm -hmm. to experience what we have experienced. 
And if you really start exploring beneath the emotion of those words to find the truth, the history of how he could say that, you'll discover unbelievable things like this. John was with Jesus at the transfiguration. Now, we're going to jump out of his writings for just a minute and into the Gospel of Matthew, the 17th chapter. You don't have to turn, just listen. Matthew writes, And after six days, Jesus took with him Peter and James and John, his brother, and led them up a high mountain by themselves. And he was transfigured before them, and his face shone like the sun, and his clothes became white as light. And behold, there appeared to them Moses and Elijah talking with him. And Peter said to Jesus, Lord, it is good that we are here. If you wish, I will make three tents here, one for you and one for Moses and one for Elijah. He was still speaking when, behold, a bright cloud overshadowed them. And a voice from the cloud said, This is my beloved Son, with whom I am well pleased. Listen to him. When the disciples heard this, they fell on their faces and were terrified. But Jesus came and touched them, saying, Rise and have no fear. And when they lifted up their eyes, they saw no one but Jesus only. And as they were coming down the mountain, Jesus commanded them, Tell no one the vision until the Son of Man is raised from the dead. Now, the really amazing parts of what happened in that, and this is why John can be so emotional about it, is Jesus spoke to their fear. He said, have no fear. What you just saw, what you just witnessed, shouldn't terrify you. Yet, so many people are afraid of him. They're afraid of Jesus becoming the Lord of their life. That's why Omega is so difficult. Mm -hmm. But they're also afraid of community. They're afraid of relationship. Right. So Jesus tells them, don't tell anybody about this. Not until after the resurrection, because nobody's going to understand it. And the reason they're not going to understand it is it's not possible for them until after the resurrection. But because Jesus is out of the grave, what we talked about last Sunday, it's all possible for us. Jesus was with God, and according to John, that means we can be too. Absolutely. And that's a, that's a game changer. Oh, it, it changes. We talked a little bit about this. It's the difference between a relational and a transactional God. Yes. And Which, what's that mean? Well, I think a lot of times we, we either, either other, other types of looking or other ways of looking at, at God is that we're taught, even through culture, is that God is more transactional than relational. In other words, if I do X, Y, and Z, God is obligated to do one, two, and three. Or if I do this, or if I give this, or if I do this, then God, it, that we do these transactions with God. Or even we look at salvation as transactional. But at its core, God is relational. And that really changes how we understand everything about him, not just how he cares for us, how he, how he disciplines us, how he guides us, how he saves us. When we look at it at, from the standpoint of a relationship and not just a transaction, our whole concept of God changes. Mm-hmm. Don and I were talking this last week about a lot of different mainline religions that have a transactional application in faith. It's all about what you do, hoping to unleash God's blessings. And in the midst of our conversation, we realized that we both grew up with a bit of that mentality as well. Though we are dyed-in-the-wool Christian church people, restoration Mm -hmm. movement people, we still had a bit of that transactional philosophy applied to us. Since you're a part of this conversation, I'm just curious, Mm -hmm. how many of you understand because you have lived the transactional part of faith, meaning if I do this, then God will do that. But if I don't do it, God will withhold things from me. (laughs) Most everybody in this room knows what we're talking about. And that's why John starts out the way he does. In the beginning was the Word, and the Word was with God that you might be with God. 
And we're talking about this too, is the idea as you read through the Gospel of John in anticipation, look at how relational Jesus is mm-hmm. in all, every one of these stories, that it's not a transactional, it's, it's very relational. Yep. And as we sat and just started listing some of those out of the Gospel of John, it's easy to see how they stack up and then our stories join them. It's the way the kingdom of God is built. It's very cool. But in order to get there, (laughs) we got to swim in the deep end of the pool. And John takes us there. So here's what we're going to ask you to do. We're going to ask you to put on your floaties, grab a noodle, whatever you (laughs) need to do, because we are about to take this up a whole nother notch. And it's not just us. It's the Apostle John that does this. So it isn't just coming from us. This is the guy who lived longer than any of the other disciples. He has the most earthly experience with Jesus of any of the apostles. And he writes this, the word Jesus was God. Let's swim. And yeah, well, we could, uh, you know, write volumes or talk for a long time just on that about the deity of Christ, the idea that, that Jesus was. And really, that's the, that's the big bombshell that he leads up to all of it. Not only was Jesus in the beginning, not only was he, is he the perfect revelation of God, not only was he with God, but he actually is God. Now, let's just admit right off the bat that the church has, the church has argued about this forever, exactly what does it mean the essence of God is with him. All of that, their church councils have written confessions, uh, all sorts of this. So we're not going to be able to go all the way to the bottom of the pool in just a minute or two. But here's the thing that makes this important, is what John says. So he says, and the word was, was God. But now look down in verse 14, because this is why it's important that the word was God. He says, and the word became flesh and dwelt among us, and we have seen his glory, glory as of the only Son from the Father, full of grace and truth. That the Word became, became flesh. So what we have here is what we call the, the concept of the incarnation. The idea that God became flesh. God became human in the form of Jesus. And there are so many ways that that impacts us. From how we live our life to how we deal with temptation to how the Spirit works through our lives that Jesus exemplified for us. But here's the, here's the greatest truth of this, and to me this is the one that is the most humbling, is that God did this, God, uh, to use a, a very theological word, and a word that we sort of recoil against, it's the word condescend, because usually when we use the word condescension, it's not in a positive way, like you're being condescending to me, you're making me feel small. Which but, Don does to me all the time. Yeah. <laughs> uh, it's, I love it. It's the idea of, if you think of it as, as when we talk to a little child, you know, you can talk to a child and you can stand up and you can talk down to a child, but when you kneel down and you talk to a child and you get on their level, that's the idea of condescension, that you go down and you humble yourself to their level. And that's exactly what God does to us, is that in the person of Jesus, God came to humanity and became humanity for the sake of us. Now, he did that because of, of the relational aspect that he had, which makes it even more um, mind-boggling that God would do this. Mm-hmm. And, and that really does change how we live every day, I think. Oh, it has to. It has to. And if you reverse engineer this verse, you find out that here's this base teaching that Jesus was God in the flesh, 
condescending that he might change our lives so that we can have the relationship that he has wanted with us Mm -hmm. from the very beginning and he can bring structure, not only salvation, but structure into us. It is all interconnected. But this last point is so hard for people to grasp that there are actually translations of the Bible that will work to get around this idea rather than confronting it. One of them is called the New World Translation. What did they do with this verse? Right. That, they look at this and, and they translate it, in the beginning was the Word and the Word was with God and the Word was a God. Now they change that to really say that it really gets to the idea of you know, multiple gods polytheism and things like that. It's, a, it's, not a, it's not an accurate translation, and I won't bore you with why it's not. But they do that just to get around the fact that, that God and Jesus are, are the same. They're the same. They're of the Trinity. They're different persons. And, and that's hard for us to understand. But that is, when you talk about it, that's the thing that trips everyone up. We can, okay, yeah, I get Jesus was this. I get he was this. I get he was a man. He was a good man, all that stuff. When you get to the fact that Jesus was God in the flesh, that just, because it has such important um, application for us, we tend to do lots of things to shut ourselves off from that. If I can say that he really wasn't, then I don't have to live like that, because that changes how we live. Well, if we trip over it too much, if we can't get to the place where we understand it, and the Trinity is one of those things that we can trip over to the point of actually walking away from our salvation mm-hmm. or never embracing it. If we don't get our mind wrapped around this idea, your soul is in jeopardy. Not only is your soul in jeopardy, but your opportunity to understand the most familiar verse from all of the Bible is in jeopardy. Understanding John 1.1 sets the table for John chapter 3, verse 16. You know this verse, but listen to it again. For God so loved the world that he gave his only son, that whoever believes in him should not perish, but have eternal life. If you can understand the was God idea, then you can truly understand the depth of teaching found in that familiar verse. That's how great his sacrifice was. God gave his son, yes, but he gave himself. That's how great his sacrifice was. He paid the price for us. God did that. Because from the very beginning, what he wanted was relationship. And he brought it through the logos, through the word, through structure, and through revelation. And as we embrace that revelation, everything changes in our lives. The gospel of John is full of those stories. And once you understand the meaning of John chapter 1, verse 1, you can begin to understand, and it takes a while to wrap your mind all the way around it, but you can understand why John wrote emotionally, why he wrote from the curious. He knew things that other people didn't know. Why John wrote from the personal, why portions of his story are supernatural. And we're going to see supernatural stories as we go through the gospel of John. And we are going to understand why the doctrinal matters so much. John brings those five things together to help us understand the whole of God. But a lot of it is very academic. A lot of it is very intellectual. Not only is it personal, not only is it curious, not only is it supernatural, but a lot of it is academic and intellectual. 
And as the worship team comes up this morning, I'm going to ask Don to tie this together for us by explaining why it is so difficult for people from an academic and intellectual standpoint to embrace Christ. What is that stumbling block? I think there's, there's two parts to it. One is that for many people, they think that I can't fully commit to something until I fully understand it. That they, they have to, you know, for an analytic person, for an engineering kind of person, they're like, I have to f- understand how the whole thing works before I can say I'm going to jump in wholeheartedly with it. And so, and here's the thing is that you can't understand this. I mean, we can scratch the surface, but you fully cannot comprehend God. And because if, I would say, if you fully understand God, then I'm as smart as he is. And if I'm as smart as God is, he's really not much of a God. The other part of it is this, is that because it has such important ramifications for it, that it's not just an academic concept, but when you understand it in that form, it changes how you live. It changes the direction of your life. It changes, can change your eternal destiny. And so for some people, because they just don't want Jesus to be the Lord of their life, I'm going to create this barrier and, and sort of use the academic understanding of it as a crutch to say, well... No, I'm going to shoot holes in this because I don't want to live as Jesus wants me to live. And so, on the one hand, we look at it and say, I would say, don't let not understanding it all keep you from making that full commitment to Jesus. And yet, on the other hand, make the full commitment to Jesus and don't worry about the, the gaps where you don't fully understand it because none of us really fully do. But that doesn't keep us from committing to it. And so much of that is the point of the structure submitting to the lordship of Jesus Christ is the alpha move. Mm -hmm. That's where he is the alpha in our life. You have all the way through to the omega to figure out the rest of it. Absolutely. And it's a journey. It's a trail. But what we know is this. That journey begins and ends with Jesus. Mm -hmm. And John helps us understand that. Ray, offer our invitation, would you? We're going to wrap this up at this point because Don and I have chased many rabbits over the course of this week, and we have spent hours in this conversation. We don't want to bore you with all of those things, but we do hope you enjoyed visiting just a little bit with us.